0: You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash Open Mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And this program about broadcasting in America in the public interest was occasioned by a visit my wife and I took last September to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's home at High Park, New York, and to St. James Episcopal Church, there where FDR was baptized and where he worshiped, and where the Roosevelt Institute awarded once again its distinguished Four Freedoms Medals, thus marking the 70th anniversary of FDR's memorable Four Freedoms speech in 1941. Well, today's Open Mind guest, Michael J. Copps, for a decade now a dedicated and extraordinarily articulate member of the Federal Communications Commission, accepted the Roosevelt Institute's highly valued Freedom of Speech and Expression Award that day with an absolutely inspiring speech. In our own generation, in our own country, Commissioner Copps insisted, these freedoms have been pushed back by special interests that have ravaged journalism and left in their path of destruction a diminished and too often dumbed down civic dialogue. Freedom of speech and expression, my guest continued, suffers from the excesses of financial speculators who are more interested in the bottom line on the quarterly report than in quality news." It is further impaired by a federal government absent without leave for more than 30 years from its responsibility to protect the public interest. Instead, Commissioner Copps boldly offered, government, and I speak specifically of the Federal Communications Commission where I work, has abetted the decline of our small-D democratic dialogue by failing to insist that the people's airwaves served the people's interest. In an even more recent speech, my guest, now leaving the FCC, said, let me be very candid. Two years ago, I thought we would be well on our way to a better media landscape by now. We had a new team in town, majorities where we needed them, and opportunities galore to correct media mistakes of previous years. Still, whatever the cause, the hopes we harbored and the dreams we dreamed of a better media seem little closer to realization now than they were then. So, Mr. Commissioner, tell us what happened.
1: Well, first of all, let me thank you so much for having me on the show. Let me explain the uh, point that I usually am uh, hatless at affairs like this, especially indoors, but I had a little surgery that did some disfigurement to my head yesterday, so I thought it would be more pleasant for your viewers to uh, view me this way. Uh, What happened was, I'm a believer in cycles in American history, the old Arthur Schlesinger uh, uh, thesis, and we waited for a long time for a period of reform to come around, uh, many, many years. And uh, finally, I thought we had it in uh, 2008, and I think in some ways uh, we did, but insofar as the media issues, uh, which are my passion at the, uh, at the FCC, we haven't come close to making the progress or even a down payment on the progress uh, that I want to make. Our news and information infrastructure has failed us at a time when this country cannot afford to have its news and information infrastructure failing.
0: Well, tell me, given the hopes and aspirations, why didn't it happen in the Obama administration?
1: Well, I think it's a matter of uh, priorities. Uh, I wish I could say that I uh, was sufficiently uh, eloquent to uh, gather three votes at the commission for everything. Uh, that I wanted to do. Uh, We have some jurisdiction, as you know, over the broadcast industry. I think a good down payment on media reform would be to have a licensing system uh, that actually had some uh, some meaning attached to it and some teeth in it. Used to be years ago, uh, you will recall this, when uh, licenses were given to broadcast stations for a period of three years. At the end of three years, uh, they came in to, uh, to get relicensed, and we had a little series of 12 or 14 guidelines. I'm not saying it was a golden age and they were beautifully enforced, but we had some guidelines and we put the guidelines here and the application there. And kind of went down uh, the list. Uh, Are they uh, communicating with their listeners in their uh, markets uh, of service? Uh, Are they reflecting diversity uh, in their areas? Are they showing news, political broadcasts, all the rest? And you didn't have to meet every one of those, but if a station was making a good faith effort to be a good citizen and to uh, pay back its uh, free use of the the airwaves, uh, they got their license uh, renewed. Uh, fast forward now. Every eight years, a broadcaster sends in a little postcard, basically, and uh, no questions asked. Usually, without even looking at the at the public file, uh, they get that license. Uh, they get that license back. Uh, and what's happened along the way, really, is, and you alluded to it uh, in the indu- introduction, is two things: failure in the uh, private sector and gross failure in the public sector. Uh, The private sector failure was one that came to be seen in many other sectors other than just media and telecommunications. More recently, it was this ungodly, uh, excessive period of consolidation. Uh, A few mega-media companies gobbling up more and more stations, closing newsrooms, farming journalists, dumbing down uh, the news, a process blessed by successive federal communications commissions. I don't think we we, we, uh, ever met a merger. Really, that we didn't didn't like, like, that we really didn't like. Uh, And, uh, you know, the merger parade uh, continues uh, marching on. But in addition to that failure and that uh, uh, misbehavior, I would uh, call it really, in the private sector. Uh, was a dereliction of the public sector walking away from all of these public interest responsibilities. Uh, President Reagan, newly installed in 1981, sent us an FCC chairman who said, you know, a television set is really nothing but a toaster with pictures, just another appliance. And that's how they proceeded to conduct their public interest oversight of that appliance. Uh, Nothing at all. Uh, Again, shortened the licensing period, but more than that, did away with with the guidelines. There were no expectations. And without expectations, I think we invited the dumbing down of the news. We invited that uh, uh, destruction of our uh, news infrastructure.
0: You think that could be reversed?
1: I think it can be reversed. I think it's going to be uphill. But uh, I think we have to make the effort because the travails that did so much damage to old media, traditional media, newspapers, radio, and television. I think those trends are coming to be uh, seen in the new media too, that kind of consolidation, uh, that kind of control by a few. And if we allow the dynamism and the life of that Internet, broadband and the Internet, which opens up such incredible opportunities for for every American, if we allow that to go down that road of uh, consolidation, I think it would be a a historical tragedy of, of major proportions.
0: But where and how, I understand in terms of broadcasting, Mm-hmm. licensed broadcasters, I understand how you, the FCC right. ran out on its obligations right. there. How does it assume such obligations with the newer media?
1: Well, uh, you can assume and We have to have a public discussion about it. Most of the debate in the last few years has been about access to the Internet, and that's where the federal communications does have some authority, because it's the telephone companies and the cable companies who control that access to the Internet. And if that access is going to be controlled by a few mega companies, in most areas you have at most two choices, in some areas only one choice of how you're going to get to that internet, if you're going to allow that to continue with the possibility of erecting toll booths uh, uh, along the way, you're really closing off access uh, to the internet. So the first thing is to provide that uh, access and to ensure that uh, access. Uh, Longer term we have to have a uh, discussion in this country and it won't be a simple one about how does the new media uh, reflect the public interest. Nobody wants to regulate uh, uh, the internet, nobody wants to sit there with a green eye shade overseeing uh, everything everybody does. You couldn't if you wanted to because it's a global phenomenon and all that. But at some point if that's where our programming is going, if that's where our news and information is going then that is invested with tremendous responsibility. The public interest is there, and we have to have an intelligent and a rational discussion about uh, uh, how we uh, how we ensure that there is news, that there is information, that there is access, that there is diversity, and, uh, and all the rest. I'm not saying there's a silver bullet or an easy answer to that, but uh, an intelligent uh, democracy needs to discuss it.
0: But I gather you are saying that an intelligent democracy, willing to discuss it, and its government or its bureaucracy, if you will, discussing it, can arrive. You, you see room there for even having these new devices serve the public yeah. interest.
1: Oh, absolutely. And they should serve... I mean, our new town square should be paved with broadband bricks, and it should open up an opportunity for people not just to speak. I mean, there, there are very few barriers to getting on the Internet, a lot of barriers to being heard. How do you actually get heard? How does... Uh... What do you mean by that?
0: Well, one of us can
1: sit down on the keyboard and write a message and send it into the blogosphere or, or wherever, but uh, how do we have any guarantee anybody's seeing that? Uh, how do we know this is a vehicle that even encourages that sort of uh, dissemination or reception to news and information? One half of one percent, I'm told, of the hits on the, on the Internet have to do with news. And a goodly percentage, a vast majority of that, like 80 or 90 percent, is news from traditional sources. So when people say, well, this fellow cops, he's just old timer, he's talking about radio and television, you know, you got to get with the future. Uh, it's a seamless thing. Over 90 percent of the news that you and I see and hear and look at every day, 90% of it comes from that newspaper newsroom or the television broadcast newsroom. The problem is there is so much less of it because of all the consolidation, because of that, oh, we've got to pay off this huge uh, transaction fee now to, uh, for, the, for the conglomeration that we just went through, and the first thing that gets cut is what? It's the newsroom. It's the reporter. So we've got in this country thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands of reporters Who are walking the street in search of a job when they should be working the beat in search of a story. you just shudder to think about the stories that are not being told every day that this democracy needs to know, the people who are not being held accountable that need to be held accountable. We've got 27 states, I am told, that don't have an accredited reporter on Capitol Hill anymore. How do you hold people accountable? How do you hold the, the Congress accountable? And the, the the first ones tell us, uh, uh, Senator Dodd uh, gave a news conference I think uh, shortly before he uh, left and said, you know, there used to be eleven reporters covering me pretty much, uh, pretty much every day, no longer. I can see it at the FCC, you know, you want to hold your institutions accountable too. When I first got there ten years ago and we had a press conference there'd be, uh, you know, we'd fill up my uh, Uh, my office with reporters. Uh, Now there's very few working in this regular beat and the ones that do are usually the corporate media who are are reporting stories back to the company interests and the special interests of the lawyers in town.
0: And how much, just between you and me, (laughs) how much of a protest have you heard from the public over that phenomenon? Depends
1: what the issue is. I think there is deep and legitimate concern across this country about it, and I can uh, I can back that up to some extent. When I got to the commission, uh, then Chairman Michael Powell was trying to loosen the media ownership rules that we had, so that a few companies could gobble up more and more stations. And I think the majority at that time thought, "Well, this is really an arcane issue. Nobody outside the Beltway is very interested in this." So you know, we we don't and. Uh, We'll let it go. My colleague, my colleague Jonathan Nadlestein, and I said we want to have some hearings, and we went out and held a couple on our own limited resources. Chairman Paul did one or two, but he didn't want to do a lot of them around the country. But we latched on where there were uh, congr- members of Congress who wanted to have town meetings or consumer or advocacy cause- causes that wanted to have hearings. So Jonathan and I probably went uh, over the years, those two or three years right in there, probably to 40 or 50 or 60 of these, uh, these meetings. Before that summer was over three million people. Three million people wrote to the FCC and Congress and said, we don't want any part of these rules that by then Chairman Powell managed to get through on a a, a, a three to two vote. But citizen action still counts. Congress heard that. The Senate voted to overturn those rules. The House was debating whether to vote when the Third Circuit Court in Philadelphia sent those rules back to the commission and said, you did a pretty sloppy job on this. Do it over. So even in this day, when so few people hold such outrageous amounts of power, I am convinced that citizen action can still make a difference. And not only am I convinced of that, but finally, I think I'm a slow learner, but after 40 years in Washington, I've finally come around to understand that that's the way change really happens in a democracy. It's from the bottom up. It's from the grassroots up. I don't think we would have had an Emancipation Proclamation back in Abraham Lincoln's time. Without the abolitionist movement, you wouldn't have had social security and social welfare uh, movements of the New Deal and the Second New Deal. Without the uh, the labor unions and, and a lot of other groups, you wouldn't have had JFK's eventual and somewhat belated uh, support of civil rights without Martin Luther King and, and the demonstrations in the streets. That's what we got to have again, and this is that important an issue to me. If we don't get this media issue sorted out right to ensure that people have the depth and breadth of information and news they need to make intelligent decisions for the future of the country, we are courting grave danger and the country is in it's in serious straits right now. I mean, you mentioned uh, being up at Hyde Park, uh, I'm not saying we're in the 1930s again, but uh, we've got some unprecedented challenges facing the viability of this country or the future of our economy, the creation of equal opportunity. Uh, making this broadband uh, available to everybody. These are serious challenges. And uh, if we don't get it right, uh, we're asking for trouble and we won't get it right until we have news and information that befits a democracy. And we've always, this has always been a challenge to our democracy from the day one. I think you can go back and look at their letters and then you can look at the legislation they passed for George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, They had this fledgling young democracy. You know this uh, better than I do. Uh, uh, It was a noble experiment, but an experiment nevertheless. Could they make it survive on on this growing basis, this large physical country? And they realized that people had to have access to news. They realized they had to be informed. So what did they do? And these are the authors of the First Amendment, mind you. These are the authors of the First Amendment, one of the first pieces of legislation they passed was for building of the post roads and subsidization of the post uh, newspapers so that of the left and the right, and they were very partisan, but get them all out. Let the people be informed. And that's exactly what happened. And that's the theory uh, behind even, I think, the coming of broadcasting in uh, in the last century is... uh, Use this to inform the people. That was the bargain with the broadcasters. You serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. We give you free use of the airwaves.
0: Do you think there's going to be some other source of support for a a media um, instrument that will do what we have to find to it?
1: Do. And I don't know what it is. There are lots of experimentation and innovation going on on the uh, internet right now but there's not a business model there for investigative journalism on the scale that we need to see it in this country. Uh, Philanthropies can help, foundations can help, Uh, so let all of those uh, blossoms uh, bloom forward, but at some point, uh, and I think it's now, we ought to be having a a discussion about uh, can the new media market support that? Does there need to be an increasing level of public support for media.
0: Well, that's why I wonder right. why you um, talk about a business model. You mean a public service model, don't you?
1: I mean, well, I think we have to consider that. Yeah, I'm not saying do away with the business model, because, the you know, I think the broadcast stations right now, most of them are, are into uh, renewed prosperity, say the least. Uh, I, think, uh, I think some of these newspapers, many of the newspapers uh, will survive. But in this country, we spend per capita, per annum, a dollar thirty-five in support of public media. One dollar thirty-five cents wouldn't buy a cup of coffee or a cup of water. Even uh, a lot of countries spend seventy-five, one hundred, $150. I was in uh, dollars per annum per capita. I was in uh, uh, Sweden not so many months ago. Again, it's very different. I'm not saying let's emulate what they do there, but it's like every household there pays like four hundred dollars a year in support of media. I'm not advocating that, but i but you have, to, you have to have a reasoned discussion, which is very difficult to have in the current political environment. Uh, is that really adequate? Can we get the news and information we want on a buck 35 uh, backing up what the commercial stations are doing or failing to do? And I, we're just not getting the news that people need by watching the, the nightly news. And It's I'm not sure, there.
0: I'm sure you have been watching in vain for this subject to surface in the coming political campaign, presidential campaign?
1: Well, I'm going to keep pushing at it. I'm going to be retiring after two terms of the Federal Communications Commission, but I'm not leaving these issues behind because I think they are vitally important. And uh, again, uh, uh, I want to see some support uh, from the grassroots. I think the potential is there. I think it has to be mobilized. There are reformers for lots of causes out there right now, lots of important issues they need to really see, and some of them do, but more of them need to, how important this one issue is. You know, you could probably ask all of the viewers watching this show tonight, what to you is the most important issue facing the United States of America? It's not going to be this. Some might say jobs. Some might say uh, 50 million uh, uninsured uh, Americans, the degradation of our environment, uh, dependence upon... Uh, energy, and that's fine with me, but what I say to those people is if that's your first issue, this future of the media needs to be your second issue, unless you're happy with how that first issue is being treated by your current media system. If you think there's enough diversity and enough depth and all of that being presented, you don't don't listen to me, you know, go happily on your way. But if you think that issue that's your number one concern would be served better by a little more in-depth reporting, a little more diversity, a little less homogenization and uniformity, a little more investigative reporting. you got to put this media issue right up there.
0: Fifty years ago, the guest whom I'm going to tape next week, Newton Minow, mm-hmm. made his famous Vast Wasteland uh, you did a speech. You think anybody could make that now and get the kind of reception he did.
1: Well, I've been trying. I haven't made that uh, eloquent a speech, I guess, or gotten as many uh, people's attention. Some people say you can make it now and call it the uh, Wasted bass land because we have all of these different uh, outlets and everything, but still so much homogeneity of content and, uh, and all that. But uh, yes, I think so. I think you can, actually.
0: I wondered got- when I watched you up at Hyde Park, where do you get this uh, spirit? At- you trained as a historian. I trained as a historian. You're so much more optimistic about what is likely to be done in our times. I
1: think I'm optimistic about what is possible to get done. I'm okay, not, I'm I'm not want putting to... all the chips on the table and saying this is going to happen. And sit back and relax because it's not going to happen without a concerned citizenry expressing itself uh, forthrightly on the importance of these issues. I don't, you know, I don't think... Uh, uh, people in power uh, uh, a lot of them necessarily oppose what i 'm some of them do, but a lot of them don't but they 're not going to put the chips on the table and do this unless they know that there somebody out there is really going to say thank you or somebody is pushing for this there 's got to be some political support that comes out of this, and I think there can be if you present the uh, present the issue right. But it hasn't been the uh, priority that I hoped uh, it would be, and that gets back to your first question, you know, what, uh, what happened and uh, why haven't we had this, uh, this kind of reform since.
0: Uh, the question that goes along with it is, for me, are there voices uh, one can hear now besides your own?
1: Oh, I think there's lots. I think there's, you know, I think a lot of people are, are interested right now in this future of journalism. What has happened in journalism it 's easier to get attention on this issue on the future of journalism and talk about it from that perspective than it was when I was talking about the media ownership rules back in two thousand and three because the big media people didn 't want to go anywhere near that issue because it was their ox that was being gored when you talked about tightening the uh, ownership rules rather than loosening them. I think there is an interest in this, but what we have to have is is the kind of uh, coverage like when uh, uh, when there are big uh, media mergers, or when all these different reports and books come, there have been some wonderful books written on uh, on the future of journalism. But uh, sometimes you look in vain in the big uh, magazines and newspapers for the, the kind of reviews that they really uh, really deserve to have. This needs to be teed up as an issue, and it's. Uh, I think uh, I think the publishers uh, are wrong if they think there's no uh, no interest in this issue.
0: Well, I wasn't talking about. Uh public interest, they can be generated. Mm -hmm. It's really talking about the leadership that you were calling for. Mm -hmm. Is there that leadership?
1: There are people I think uh, in Congress uh, that are very interested in this issue. I don't think, again, and I'm I'm not trying to speak for the administration. I'm not a member of the administration. I'm a member of an independent uh, agency who actually went there uh, uh, 10 years ago. But I think there are uh, I think there was support uh, for my stance on consolidation. I think Senator Obama made clear that, uh, you know, he had concern about uh, some of the media consolidation uh, that deals- That was Senator Obama and President and, Obama? And bringing the public interest back. So, uh, so my point is I don't think there's opposition to that, but again, it's how do you get it on that list of priorities? How do you get that attention for it? And how do you provide the motivation for them to proceed and get this done?
0: Are you uh, asking for suggestions or do you think you know that in the years ahead what path you're going to follow? No, I'm
1: looking for suggestions.
0: Because I, I I wanted to ask you, and if you would stay where you are and let us do another program, I want to go back to some of the older FCC questions like the fairness Doctrine and um, um, equal time and things like that, because I'm sure you must feel that those issues played an important role in what has happened uh, to broadcasting.
1: I think they did. I think they were important issues. Uh, I think We need to frame our policies going forward in the lexicon of the 21st century, uh, rather than debating whether we should bring back something that may have been, uh, may still be appropriate, but was perhaps more appropriate back uh, 30 or 40 uh, years ago.
0: Well, our time is up now, and you may tell me my time is up as an old-timer. I think that may be the reference that you're making, but stay where you are. We'll do another program, Commissioner. Thanks for joining me today. Okay. Thank you. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you'll join us again next time as well. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash Open Mind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash Open Mind.